Our gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 2. We are reading verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that it's by your word that you created all things, and it's by your word today that you presently sustain and uphold all things. You send forth your spirit, and you uphold all that there is. It's in you that we live and we move and we have our being. And we come to you this morning that by your same word, you will speak and that you will grant us life as we hear your voice and believe in the one whom you've sent for us. And so we ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a young minister, my first assignment after seminary was to serve at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. As many of you know, I was an assistant pastor there and I was learning, I was doing everything for the first time. My second or third wedding in, I had the assignment of one of the more significant families of the city of Memphis. They had been there for a long time. Their family had been members of Second Presbyterian Church, I believe, for the church's entire 160-year history at that point. So drawing the straw for this wedding was nerve-wracking. It was appointed to be at 7 p.m. on a Saturday night. That is the most formal hour in Southern society for a wedding, if you didn't know. Everyone was wearing tuxes, And by everyone, I mean all 700 people filling the sanctuary that night. I was obviously nervous. Third or fourth time I had done it. I tried to memorize my lines. I was working really hard to hone down the homily and get everything in good order to serve this couple well. The bride comes down the aisle and I could tell that we were in for a tricky ceremony. She was pale and wobbly. 
I preached my homily, pulled out early, thought I was, I was so proud of myself. I seemed to be getting through everything. We got to the vows. And I began to ask the questions. I asked the husband whether he would take this woman to be his wife. He answered successfully. I then turned to the woman and I said, do you take this man to be your wife? All of a sudden, the paleness was gone, wobbly legs were gone, and everyone was now looking at me. And I turned 51 different shades of red right there on the spot. It was a social catastrophe. It broke open the night. Everyone in Memphis was actually talking about it the next day. Did you hear what the young green minister did? Jesus turns up at a similar scene in Cana of Galilee there was a major social faux pas. The wine ran out. This was a social embarrassment that you actually could be legally uh, responsible for in ancient Near Eastern society. Social catastrophe, but it wasn't that of a young green minister. Rather, it was of the wedding host himself. They had run out of supplies. It's in the midst of these very ordinary shockingly humble circumstances that John tells us Jesus works a miracle and he manifests his glory. And John records that miracle for us and he then offers an interpretation of it in light of Jesus's death and resurrection, everything that we know later on. And so when we come to John 2 this morning, It's not that we're just coming and looking at a historical narration of an event that took place in which Jesus miraculously turns water into wine, but rather we're looking also at something deeper, that there is behind these events other purposes that John assigns to this odd and strange thing that happens at this humble wedding. But what exactly are they? There's three things that I want to bring to your attention this morning. First, we discover the insufficiency of earthly joy. In verse three, we discover the circumstances happening. Third day is a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. She's stating the obvious to Jesus. She's informing him, letting him know that there's a problem because Jewish weddings were festivals. They actually ran through the course of a week. It was a time for family and friends and community to be gathered together to celebrate the rich and good and profound gifts of God that he freely gives to his people. And so it's no surprise that we have wine featured here because it was meant to be celebratory. And in the Jewish tradition and custom that Christians have inherited, wine was never used in an overindulgent way. It was never used to forget. But rather the gifts of wine and the gifts of creation were always used to remember. They were to take us deeper into the pleasures that God gives us inside of his good world. And so there was a party and a festival celebrating all of this. 
But it's important that we recognize the limitations. John says the wine ran out. And isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth about any good thing that God gives us to enjoy inside of the creation? And this is how John crafts the story for us. That the good gift of God that was to enliven the wedding ceremony as the people gathered to celebrate, that it ran out, it ran dry, it failed. And it's so important for us to recognize that all the good gifts that God entrusts to us, that he gives to our care, that he freely gives for our enjoyment, that all of those things are parables that are to direct us to him, that they are never sufficient in and of themselves, that they will fail us. They will come up short. They will come dry. Because what they are to do is lead us to the fullness of life that's found in Jesus. Now, it's important for us to recognize how John brings this together. Because wine in the Old Testament and an abundance of it was actually a sign that the prophets spoke about a good bit. Isaiah speaks of it. Hosea speaks of it. Jeremiah speaks of it. And Amos also speaks of it. In chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, it speaks of the day of the coming Messiah and that there would be an abundance of wine and it wouldn't be dry. And so suddenly we see what's happening. The wine ran out. It failed. It came up short. And Jesus provides a super abundance. Friends, we're talking about 150 gallons. That's a lot. Super abundance. And what Jesus is pointing to in this super abundance of wine is that the coming of God's kingdom, all that God had spoken of in the Old Testament about the day where his purposes and plans would all come to fruition, the restoration of all things, the healing of creation, Jesus is indicating that that has arrived. That all the insufficiency of the creation, all the things that it cannot deliver, the ways that it fails us, this is now being fulfilled. And he's pointing to Jesus and all of his purposes. And so we receive a clear communication that creation itself is insufficient. It's good, it's meant to be enjoyed. But all of creation points to Jesus. And he is the one who's to take center stage. And so here in this wedding, he does, pointing us to everything where we are to find true fulfillment and joy. Now the second piece to this is that we also encounter the purpose of the miracle. If you look at the close of this section in verse 11, John writes this, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And then very importantly, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, it's important to recognize that there were six large jars, jugs, you could say, or cisterns, and they were used for a very specific purpose. They were filled with water because in Leviticus 11, we learned that the Jewish rites of purification, when you came in from the profane world into the sanctified and holy world to approach food and festivity and joy, you had to wash. And so these Jugs of water were used for purification as part of the Jewish law. 
And we know that in the Gospel of John, especially when we come to chapter six, there's an intimate connection between wine and the blood of our Lord Jesus that is given for purification. That he is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world through the shedding of his blood. And John is making it explicitly clear for us that Jesus comes to build upon and replace that Jewish purification system that was located in the temple where there was atonement, where heaven and earth became one because there was the forgiveness of sins. That he is now that temple, he is that atoning object, that all of that is found in him, that purification and cleanliness from all of the profane world in which we have participated and which surrounds us is found only in him. And that this is his glory that's manifested among us. That in Jesus' willingness to be the sacrificial victim, John is saying that that is his glory. His willingness to be humiliated, his willingness to be judged on our behalf, his willingness to stand in our place. That's the glory that's being manifest here at this wedding in the Cana of Galilee. Several years ago when I was serving as a pastor in Washington, D.C., a good friend of mine who had grown up in the church and then mostly departed from it, and he had chosen to go in an alternate path from the ways in which he had been taught, and he found himself ensnared in many different sins, particularly sexual sins. Our humble church in the middle of that big city was the place that he stumbled into. And for months, he wore a gray hoodie and covered his head and sat in the back and left before I said the benediction. <laughs> no matter how many times I tried to meet him, I couldn't. <laughs> Finally, he set up a lunch with me. And at that lunch, I met not a gray hoodie, but a man in a powerful business suit. He was a lawyer in town and actually handled fairly important things. And I asked him what was up with the gray hoodie. And the months and years ahead would explain that. There was such great shame and humiliation. He then met a beautiful young woman, godly woman in our church, and they fell in love and began to talk about marriage. And he came to me one day in crisis and he shared with me that there was no way he was worthy of this woman. There's no way his life didn't add up. What he had done, what he had thought, what he had said, the many times that he had betrayed God, that he had sought to do better and then he had gone back on it. It was crushing. He said, Chuck, I have to break the engagement. She can't marry somebody like me. And that's how it works for us sinners. We think that God can't love people like us. When we search through the inventory of the things we've done, the things we thought, the things we've said, it can be completely humiliating when we're honest. And friends, what's discovered here though, when we talk about Jesus' glory being manifest, is we discover the death of shame we discover the relief of our burdens. We discover the removal of our guilt. We discover that God cancels it out through his glory and that glorious display was a bloody mess. 
It was Jesus crucified on a cross for the sins of the world. And so when we find ourselves in that despair, what does God want us to do? Does he want us to turn in upon ourselves and find ourselves sinking into depression and hurt? No, but rather it is to look to the glorious display of Jesus upon the cross on our behalf. That is where we turn. And this is where the miracle at Galilee pushes us and forces us. That we're to look to purification and confidence and all boasting. Any boasting that we can have in front of God is only because of what another has done on our behalf. And that is Jesus. And perhaps for many of us, it's also encouraging that Jesus' first miracle in which he points to this forgiveness takes place in the context of a marriage. It's fairly similar to the book of Genesis where we have a creation account in John's gospel in chapter one and chapter two moves right into a marriage. The site and location for many of us in which our greatest failures take place. It's where we're known, it's where we can't hide. And this is where the grace of God manifests itself to us in the face of our biggest failures. And so look to that glorious display. Find your confidence there and know that nothing can overcome that. The final thing that we see in this miracle is that we are also confronted with the proper response. We see what Jesus is doing and pointing to the insufficiency of creation. We see what he's doing and pointing to the sufficiency of his atoning sacrifice, the blood that would be spilled. But the final thing, he also leads us. John leads us through the characters in the story as to what it means to respond to Jesus. There's two people in particular that are featured. The first is Mary after she's rebuffed by Jesus, she then turns to the servants in almost prophetic fashion and says, do whatever he tells you. Commentators have spilled a lot of blood about how she knew what, and I don't really care. She was wise, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus, he turns to the servants And this is what he says. He says, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And I want you to note the simplicity of the commands that are given. Fill, draw, take. It's staccato in its emphasis. And it's all there for very explicit purpose. Mary has said, do whatever he tells you. Fill, draw, take. That's what was to be done. And when we do the simple thing that Jesus commands us, Jesus then does saving things. And that's the word of God for us this morning. That when we take up Jesus' simple command to believe and to trust, and when we turn to him in that simple way, that Jesus shows up and does the super abundant thing that goes beyond what we can ask or imagine and definitely beyond what we deserve. 
And so we're to trust, we're to believe, we're to follow. He doesn't command elaborate rituals. He doesn't give us things that we're to do to please God to then earn his favor, but rather to take up those simple commands that we are to believe, we're to trust him. That's the response. Do whatever he says. Fill, draw, take. And so it's not surprising that John closes in verse 11 and his disciples believed in him. Now we'll see that over and over where the disciples are progressively drawn into the glory of Jesus and into believing him. And that's just because this is not a one-time transaction. We put our faith in Jesus and then that faith is continually invested in him. And that's the proper response for us today, to trust him in the simple ways that he says, that we are to look to him, that he is the one who is qualified to bring sufficient joy to you in this creation, that he brings the fulfillment of it, that he is the one qualified to be the atoning sacrifice, to make purification for sins, because we can't. And that our part is to trustingly obey, not with elaborate rituals, but faith, belief, to fill, to draw, to take, to do whatever he tells us, because he is the master of the feast. He becomes the host. And that great feast that is awaited Found in Isaiah 25, there's rich food and rich wine, and it's the healing of all the nations. And every one of our desires that are deeply buried in our hearts because we were created in the image of God are fulfilled on that day. And Jesus said this wedding is drawing us all into that great story. And so find your hearts full there in him and what he offers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the shockingly humble circumstances in which you sent your son, in which he overcame the social embarrassment of a difficult situation, and then yet he points us to so much more. Grant us the faith to do whatever he says, to believe, to fill that simple command, to trust him. And may Jesus then show up and do the superabundant thing beyond what we can ask or imagine to fill what is lacking. Do this for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.